0: Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 through 17 pins the following words put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts kindness humility meekness and patience bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you must also forgive In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's inspired, infallible, inerrant, sufficient word. You may be seated. Every marriage, without exception, is the union of two sinners that are in desperate need of extravagant grace. Every marriage, without exception, is the union of two sinners that are in need of extravagant grace. Friends, love is not easy. Marriage is not easy. There isn't a relationship this side of eternity in a Genesis 3 fallen world that is easy. You think about marriage, at first you're completely smitten for each other. Everything about the other person seems completely perfect, but then as time goes by, you begin to see more and more of who that other individual really is. You'll find out 30 years into marriage who you really married. You start to realize, as the days pass, that the person that you married, much to your chagrin and sorrow, isn't perfect. The person that you married isn't perfect, and neither are you. And so you've got to decide that you're willing to love despite the imperfections that you at first did not see. You must decide that you are willing to love despite what you did not know was previously there, what has been unearthed since you said, I do. We all carry baggage into marriage. And not all baggage is bad baggage. We bring great baggage into marriage. But we all bring some pretty dirty baggage into marriage as well. We don't open all those bags day one. No, marriage is a lifelong process of unearthing what we brought into marriage to begin with. You think about dating, you think about engagement, you think about courting. We've, we've always put our, our best foot forward when we're dating and courting and engaged. It's not until after you get married again that you find out who you really married. Paul Tripp says this. He says, Western culture dating is just a step above used car sales. Then he goes on to explain. He says, because the last thing we want in dating is for the person to really get to know me. You see, I'm attracted to this other person, not because I love him or her primarily, but because of what he or she can do for me. You see, we're selfish at the core. That's part of the baggage that we bring into marriage. As we we walk into marriage, not loving a person for who they are, warts and and difficulties and sins and all the above, we walk into marriage oftentimes wondering, what will this person do for me? And then our expectations get shattered and dashed pretty quickly. I love because of what this person will do for me. And so instead of trying to get to know each other, really get to know each other, we spend more time trying to sell ourselves to each other. And then we get married and find out what we really got. I think about unmet expectations. One of the greatest challenges in our marriages is the perceived disconnect between our expectations and reality. You see, marriage is an ongoing, vivid illustration of what it costs to love an imperfect person unconditionally. Everyone comes into marriage with a past. If you're married here this morning and your spouse is sitting next to you, turn to your spouse and say this, I have baggage. Now turn to your spouse and say, I have baggage too. Now look each other in the eyes and say, I'm yours for life. That's marriage. That's marriage. I have baggage. You have baggage. I have sin and warts of every kind. And I'm yours for life. And we're in this together. And we know that God's greatest design and goal for my marriage is primarily his glory. That's God's greatest aim for everything he does. But secondarily is for my good, and that good for me is that day by day, because of being married to an imperfect person who has baggage like me, I might, as a result of God's generous kindness, begin to look more and more like Jesus. That's marriage. That's marriage. It's beautiful. It's not easy, but it's beautiful. Friends, your spouse is going to let you down. Your spouse is going to disappoint you. Your spouse is going to hurt you. Your spouse may even at times break your heart. That's one of the realities of marriage in a Genesis three fallen world. But God's grace is sufficient for every marriage woe. Think about this as I counsel so many young people. It's has become quite an odd thing to me. Uh, that couples look at me like a confused puppy when I tell them that I require eight sessions of premarriage counseling. And I think that part of the reason behind that is, is because a lot of young married couples don't even consider premarriage counseling to begin with. And if they think about premarriage counseling, they think about a wham bam, thank you, ma'am, you know, let's get the show on the road type of premarriage counseling. As a matter of fact, that's what takes place in a lot of our churches today. We'll meet once or twice or three times with a couple or with the pastor, and then we just usher you down the aisle and, and, and get you married. The last thing that I ever want to do is run a marriage mill. We, we have a responsibility to be helping young people in particular who are getting married understand the realities of marriage, help them understand the biblical basis for marriage, Help them understand what you do when there's conflict in marriage. Help them understand how to communicate in marriage. Help them understand God's design and intention for intimacy in marriage. God's design for the uniqueness of role in marriage. We've got to be preparing people for that. And I think one of the things that I constantly belabor in pre-marriage counseling is the point that marriage will never satisfy you. Marriage was never meant to satisfy you. As a matter of fact, if you go into marriage looking to marriage to satisfy the deepest longings and desires of your soul, you will be left empty-hearted, empty-handed every time, discouraged, frustrated, disillusioned because you're asking of marriage something that it was never intended nor was it designed to be able to do. Jesus is the one that satisfies the deepest longings and desires of your soul. If you look to marriage to do what only Jesus can, you have made marriage an idol and you're setting yourself up for heartache and pain. Marriage will never satisfy. There's no such thing as a utopian marriage. That ended in the garden when sin entered into the world. Perfect marriages don't exist, but that doesn't mean that marriage can't be extremely and incredibly sweet. Even if you're here this morning and your marriage is broken, which in a room this size, there are broken marriages. There are broken marriages that we're aware of, and there are broken marriages that we know nothing about because we put our pretty face on when we come to church. We put our big smile on. We put our grins on. We put a, hi, how are you doing? Great, how are you on? We, we let people come this far, but we don't let anybody in between here and the real heart. And there are struggling marriages in here that we don't know anything about. But I will tell you this, even if you're here this morning and your marriage is broken, don't ever forget that God is in the business of making beauty out of ashes. If God can redeem a human soul and can lift us up out of the pit and set our feet upon the rock, what can he not do in your marriage? Nothing. The answer's nothing. Marriage will never satisfy you. Another thing that I always try to help people understand in pre-marriage counseling is this. Sin is the real problem. Sin is the real problem. You see, we oftentimes go to war in marriage because of silly things. Like, you're not just like me, and I love myself. And because you're not like me, I have all kinds of problem with that. Sin is the problem. You know, what if you abandoned the idea that the problems and the weaknesses in your marriage aren't caused by a lack of information, they're not caused by a lack of dedication or communication, but instead you saw them as, caused, as, as a result of or caused by a war within your own heart. Every conflict in marriage can be traced back to a war of desires. I want what I want. You want what you want. The problem is, is that what I want and what you want aren't congruent. And so instead of Philippians 2, considering others as being more important than myself, we suit up and we go to war. And it's not very long into war before we forget what the original problem was to begin with. We're just so bent on going after each other that we forgot what the original problem was. In pre-marriage counseling, we talk often about attacking problems and not people. But oftentimes in marriage, we forget that principle. and We begin to attack each other. And in doing so, we forget very quickly what the original problem was to begin with. It's just, I want to win, or I want to be right, or I want to protect myself, or a number of other things. Sin is the problem. That radiant woman whose finger you slipped that wedding ring on, men, she's a sinner. Ladies, that man who offered you a vow of perfect faithfulness and lifelong sacrifice, he's a sinner. Dealing with your sin problem is the key to a thriving marriage. Write that one down and think long and hard about it. Dealing with our sin issues is the key to a thriving marriage. Putting Jesus in his rightful place and then dealing with the sin of my heart. Your marriage will take on a whole new look if you do those two things. When we apply the gospel to our sin, it gives us hope in our marriages. Thomas Watson, the old Puritan, once said this. He said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will never be sweet. You see, until we know the real problem, we'll never savor the real solution. Until you see the problems in your marriage as being primarily sin problems, you'll never look to Jesus as being the solution. Do you see the disconnect that creates in marriage? Then we turn to all the, the humanistic ways of fixing things, all the Dr. Phil's and the Oprah's of the world who offer nothing but hollow, man-centered wisdom. You wake up every morning next to a mirror that reflects your sin back to you. See, being married faces you to deal with character issues that you probably wouldn't otherwise know were even there, and that's a great thing. Marriage forces you to deal with you. Because every morning you wake up to a mirror that reflects you back to you. And instead of getting frustrated about that, instead of getting angry about that, why don't you hit your knees, and i in the crosshairs, hit our knees and thank God for his goodness and grace in our lives that he would give us such a grace as a spouse that reflects me back to me and helps me see my sin. Because till sin be bitter, Christ will never be sweet. That was all intro. You ready for point number one? Here it is. Every married couple, if you're taking notes, must remember that I do is a daily commitment. Every married couple must remember that I do is a daily commitment. Let me just draw your attention back to verses 12 through 14 again. Paul says, put on then. Put on then as God's chosen ones. And then what he gives us here is he gives us three indicatives. Remember, indicatives are what is true about you. This is, this is true Pauline writing here. This is the way he writes in Colossians. This is the way he writes in Ephesians. This is the way he writes in Romans. He tells us what's true about us in Christ. And then he says, as a result of that, now do this. Well, Here's what's true about us. Here's, here's the indicatives. He says, you're chosen ones. You're holy and you're beloved in Christ not going to say a whole lot about that. If you are interested in in more study there, I encourage you to go back and check out Ephesians chapter 1. It's on our website, uh, verses 3 and the following, where we dealt with some of that exact same language there. Paul tells us there, who who am I, Paul? I'm a chosen one. By grace, I'm holy. By grace, I'm beloved by God. By grace, now as a result, he tells us, That I do is a daily commitment. And here's how he tells us I do is a daily commitment. He says, put on compassionate hearts, put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness, put on patience, put on bearing with one another, put on forgiveness, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Every married couple must remember that I do is a daily commitment. And friends, get this, hear it loud and clear. I do is really just another way of saying I die. I do really means I die. As a matter of fact, Paul says that very thing in verses 3 and verse 5. Let your eyes scan back to chapter 3, verse 3. I mean, Paul says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Drop down to verse 5. Therefore, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And so when you stand at the altar, and you declare your love and make your vows to another sinner, and you say the words, I do, what you're really saying is, I die. I die. Not only is the Christian life a process of dying to self, but subsequently every Christian marriage is a process of daily dying to self. That's not easy. It's not fun at times. Why? Because I love myself the problem. Everybody take these two fingers, just like this, point them right here, and say, I am the problem in my marriage. How many of you got an elbow right there? There shouldn't have been any elbows flying. I am the biggest problem in my marriage. The biggest problem is, I don't like to die. I don't like to die. And at times, I'm, really, I'm willing and ready to go to war instead of dying to self. It's what every conflict in marriage is. It's what every relational tension in marriage is. is I'm ready to go to war instead of dying. A strong marriage isn't magically created when a couple stands at the altar and says, I do. Strong marriages are built on a lifetime of I do's. And I would go further and say a lifetime of daily I do's. Even when the sailing is on less than smooth waters, every day I do. And so Paul tells us to dress ourselves accordingly. He tells us to put on eight qualities here in the text, that will please Christ and help us to grow strong marriages. Uh, the, the verb there, put on, it's the Greek word induo. It carries the idea of sinking into, like clothing, to put on or to clothe oneself. It's an imperative, it's a, it's a command, which means every day that we wake up, we are commanded to, that is intentionally to, put on this particular marriage outfit. And if you're not married, if you're single. All of these principles here, all of these qualities, they apply to every relationship. And so I said that every every day, every married couple must commit to, I do. Now, what does that mean here in our text? Well, it means that every day, I do to compassion and kindness. Write that down. That's what you committed to at the altar. Every day I do, I do what? I do to compassion and kindness. Compassion there, it's mercy or it's sympathy. Think about your marriage now. Does that characterize your marriage? Mercy and sympathy. We should never be indifferent to each other. We should never be cruel to each other. We should never speak or deal harshly with one another. We should never give each other, and we do this often in marriage as a way to punish one another, the cold isolation treatment. That's not compassion. One of the characteristics of a genuinely converted believer is that he or she possesses a heartfelt compassion for others, and that's exemplified greatly in our marriages. Compassion is feeling towards another person the same way that God feels towards that person and dealing with them accordingly. Husbands, are you dealing with your wives that way? Are you being compassionate to them? Are you seeing them as Christ sees them? Are your expectations way too exorbitant? Are you dealing with them Cruelly, harshly. Kindness. It's the attribute of a person whose neighbor's good, your spouse in this case, is as dear to him or her as their own. Kindness. It expresses the material usefulness of things in Scripture, often has the idea of goodness or pleasantness or softness. Think about your marriage. Are Those adjectives that would describe your relationship with your spouse. We're not only to speak in a useful way, but we are to act in a useful, good, pleasant way with our spouse. Kindness is that gentle, gracious, easy-to-be-entreated disposition. Husbands, are you easy-to-be-entreated? Are you harsh with your wife where she fears to come to you? Wives, are you easy to be entreated by your husband? Or are you so tied up and busy with other things that you don't give him time? Has he slipped from being the most important relationship outside of Christ in your life? A husband who's kind will have good things to say about his wife. A wife who's kind will be considerate of her husband. No one wants to be around a person who's all wound up tighter than an eight-day clock and might blow their springs at any time. No, we want to be around a kind person, an easy-to-be-entreated person. Compassion and kindness, do those two adjectives describe your marriage? Because those are two things, the first two things, that Paul tells us that we must slip into or put on each day. When you made a commitment and said, I do at the altar, what you were saying is, I do every day to compassion and kindness. Is it going to be easy? It's not. Why? Because you love you. And I love me. So we've got to die. If we want to be compassionate, if we want to be kind in our marriage, we've got to die. When Paul goes on, look at the next two there. He lists humility and meekness. When you sit at the altar and said, I do to your spouse, what you said is, I do every day, To humility and meekness. Humility is that attitude that esteems others better than ourselves, Philippians chapter 2. John Stott refers to humility as the rarest and the fairest of all Christian virtues. We're to put on humility. Again, we love ourselves. That's pride. That's self-centeredness. We're to put on humility. Each day when you step out of bed and you put feet to floor, you ought to pray and ask God that he would give you a humble heart toward your spouse. Because that's not natural. That's supernatural. That's not who we are naturally. Meekness, it's gentleness. If you go back to our study of the Sermon on the Mount, same word there. We're to be gentle or meek in our marriages It's the willingness to suffer injury instead of inflicting it. That's not natural. That's supernatural. Meekness is the willingness to suffer injury instead of inflicting it. From a biblical perspective, you might remember us saying that it's strength under control. You see, it takes greater strength to exhibit meekness than it does to burst forth in anger and lose control. Humility and meekness, you know what they do? They set aside their own rights. Humility and meekness set aside their own rights. You see, healthy marriages aren't the result of two individuals that are demanding to be satisfied, but rather two individuals who are willing to suffer loss. Friends, we don't need to ask God if pride is a problem in our marriages. A better question is where is pride a problem and how is pride a problem? In my marriage? Those are two better questions. Where is pride a problem in my marriage? And how is pride a problem in my marriage? Just like we're to put on compassion and kindness, Paul says every day we are to say, I do to humility and meekness. Paul says that we're to say, I do every day to patience and forbearance as well. You see, a strong marriage doesn't require the absence of perfection, or imperfection, rather. But it does require an unwavering commitment to each other until the day that we're made perfect. A strong marriage doesn't require the absence of imperfection. But it does require an unwavering commitment until the day that we're made perfect in Christ. And friends, that requires patience. It requires patience. A literal translation of patience. It's the Greek word makrothumia. It means long-suffering. It describes a spouse who doesn't have a short fuse, but who has a long fuse. A really, really long fuse. How long is your fuse? Are you quick to spout off? Are you quick to explode? Are you quick to fly off the handle? Are you quick to slam a door? Are you quick to throw up walls? are you long-suffering? Are you patient? Are you enduring? I think particularly about the tongue. How how patient are you with your tongue? Remember Luke 6.45, out of an overflow of the heart, the what? The mouth speaks. The mouth speaks. Patience is the ability to respond in love when others treat us poorly. It's like an extended governor on our will and our emotions before giving way to anger and frustration. Friends, you can rest assured that God will bring people into your lives, namely your spouse, who will help you grow in patience. Notice I didn't say test your patience. That will help you grow in patience. You can look at your spouse and you can say, you are one of God's greatest blessings to me. You are one of God's most wonderful gifts to me because you help me grow in patience. And in doing so, you help me look more like the Jesus I serve. You see, your spouse isn't an obstacle in your life, though we oftentimes treat them that way. An obstacle in the way, a barrier in the way to me getting what I want, when I want it, how I want it, how much of it I want. No, your spouse is a means of grace to you, a wonderful gift from God. Imperfect, you better believe it, but a wonderful grace and gift. James tells us, he says, my beloved brothers, familiar language, right? That's how Paul opens the text here, telling us that we're beloved, holy, chosen. He says, beloved brothers, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That is the text there, just James 1 19 and 20, that speaks to having a really long fuse. Patience. Patience. You see, successful marriages are due in part to the fact that two spouses, because they see how great God's long suffering is towards them, can now turn to each other. And grow in patience with the imperfections of the spouse that God has given them. Do you know that your spouse isn't the end product yet? I mean, that's what we look forward to, right? Being confident in this, Paul tells us, that he who began a good work and you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I mean, that's our great hope. But we're not there yet, we're in the middle of already and not yet. Patience. It takes patience to live under the same roof day in and day out with a person whose imperfections are glaring. And no one sees your imperfections quite like your spouse does. Your children see more than anyone else does, but no one sees your imperfections quite like your spouse does. Are you being patient with one another? Long-suffering, enduring with one another, realizing that each other is not the finished product yet, but that you actually have a role in helping your spouse go to be more like Christ. And then forbearance, patience, Paul says forbearance, or to bear with, it means to endure, to stand up under, to be tolerant of. At times, we struggle to be tolerant of our spouse, Right? It's similar to patience, but it's the positive side. Literally, it means to uphold or to support someone. So to be patient is to be long-suffering, to have a long fuse or a long wick, to be forbearing or to bear with. It means to uphold or to support one another. You see, not only do you restrain yourself, patience, but you support your spouse and you encourage them. How are we doing there, husbands and wives? Are you supporting your spouse? Are you encouraging them? Are you helping them to fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith? If we're quick to anger instead of being patient and long-suffering and enduring in our marriage, then we need to revisit verse 12. Because being chosen by God, being holy and being beloved, hasn't broken our heart enough to bring us down from our self-centeredness and our pride if we're struggling with patience, long-suffering, endurance, bearing with, go back to verse 12 and ask God to break your heart over those three realities of being chosen by God, holy and beloved, because that will knock us off our high horse real quick. Paul goes on and he tells us that for a marriage to thrive... That means every day I must say I do to forgiveness and grace. And I'm going to camp here for a few minutes. Okay, we're going to pitch a tent right here. Verse 13 B, the back half. Look, Paul says, Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Friends, it is not time and space that heals hurts in marriage. It is forgiveness and grace. It's not time and space. Oftentimes that's what we do. We, 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 we go at each other and there becomes distance in our marriage and we think we just need space and we just need time. No, we need forgiveness and we need grace. A happy marriage is the union of two good forgivers. Are you one? One. A happy marriage is the union of two good forgivers. You see, forgiveness is surrendering your right to hurt another person when they've hurt you. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness really, at the end of the day, means to cancel a debt, to absorb a blow without enacting punishment or penalty or retribution or vindication. How how are we doing there? I mean, our natural response is, you hurt me, I'll show you. And it comes out in the way that we speak, it comes out in the way that that we act. We oftentimes try to punish each other in marriage. What if we took the same time and the same energy that we spent trying to inflict punishment because you've hurt me in marriage to pursuing forgiveness and grace, to canceling debts instead of charging them? To our spouse's account. You see, forgiveness isn't easy. I I understand that there are, even in this room, there are some difficult circumstances. There may be some of you sitting in here this morning that may say, but you have no idea what my spouse has done to me. Friends, forgiveness isn't easy. Jesus never said that it would be easy, but he also never said it was optional. Forgiveness is always costly. It will cost you something to forgive. It'll cost you laying down your perceived rights. Might cost you your reputation. It'll cost you absorbing whatever the sin offense blow was without turning around and lashing out in response. But forgiveness always costs. I can tell you this. Forgiveness is always easier when your heart is filled with compassion. Forgiveness is always easier when your heart is filled with kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You want to grow in being a good forgiver? Grow in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. See, if you don't put on forgiveness, you'll wear bitterness by default. If you don't intentionally, in duo, slip into, wear, put on as a garment, forgiveness, you'll wear bitterness by default. How do we get to the place of forgiveness when we've been wronged or hurt by the sin of others? Well, I think the answer is in the last phrase of verse 13. Look at your Bible there. Paul says, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. That's the answer. As we look back to the enormous debt that has been canceled on our behalf, and then when we look at the person who has offended me or who has sinned against me, it's a whole lot easier to to absorb the blow of their massively smaller offense in comparison to my heinous offense before a thrice holy God. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. I think perhaps most the, gra- the most graphic picture of forgiveness that's illustrated in the Bible is a parable recorded in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. You'll remember, don't turn there. It's the parable of the unforgiving servant. Maybe it be a good quiet time for you this week. When Peter asks about the limits of forgiveness... He says, "Lord, how often will I forgive my brother's sin against me, and I still forgive him?" And Jesus told him the story of a man who had an unpayable debt. And Jesus said, "Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be like or compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, and his wife and his children, all that he had, and payment to be made, to settle the debt. Not to cancel it, but to settle the debt, to pay the debt. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity, same word, compassion there. Out of pity, out of compassion. The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. See, this is a picture of salvation here. God forgiving the unpayable debt of unrighteous rebellion against him. But unfortunately, that forgiven servant went and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a small amount in comparison, and he imprisoned him for nonpayment. In other words, he had just had his debt canceled, but he goes to impose the smaller debt on his servant. The very one who had eagerly accepted comprehensive forgiveness from his master would not forgive a small, easily payable debt of another. Friends, the forgiven servant in Matthew chapter 18, that's you and that's me. That's the whole point of that parable. It's you and it's me. We've received complete forgiveness, pardon full and free, but yet oftentimes we're unwilling to forgive the offenses of others committed against us which pale in comparison. You see, canceling an enormous debt makes an enormous statement. Healthy marriages are healthy because the people in those marriages find joy in canceling debts. Not endure the drudgery of canceling debts, but because the spouses in those marriages find joy in canceling debts. Think about your marriage for a moment you consider it pure joy to cancel the debts of your spouse? Or do you find some greater sadistic, me-centered, selfish joy in dangling it over their head? I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Every husband in here is a 10,000-talent debtor. Likewise, every wife in here is a 10,000-talent debtor. It's the whole point of Jesus' parable. We must remember that more significant than any sinful offense committed against me by my spouse pales in comparison to the far greater injustice that my sin is before God. And when I get a glimpse of that, it makes it a whole lot easier for me to forgive my spouse spouses who have a hard time forgiving one another lack an understanding of and we all lack a comprehensive understanding but lack an understanding of the greatness of their own forgiveness Those who have themselves been cleared of the crushing debt of their sin must not exact from their spouses the petty debt that is accrued against them. Love suffers long. Love forgives. Let me ask you this question, friends. When your spouse acts wrong, and we all do, no elbows here. When your spouse acts wrong, for many of us, it will be sometime between now and the time you get in your car. When your spouse acts wrong, is it possible that God is using those wrong actions to make you a better husband to your wife or a better wife to your husband? Let me submit to you the answer is yes. When your spouse acts wrong, and we all do at times, is it possible that God is using those wrong actions of your spouse to help you grow in being more of the husband that God's called you to be or more of the wife that God has called you to be? The answer, I think, is a resounding yes. A resounding yes. Yes. Let's land the plane here. We've got to say, I do every day to love in action. When couples love God first, they love each other a whole lot better. Look at what Paul says here. He says, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In other words, what he's saying here is love is the previous seven things. Love is humility. Love is meekness. Love is compassion. Love is grace, love is forbearance, and love is forgiveness. Are you a good lover? Are you loving your spouse well? Of all these things put on love, but all these things are comprehensive of what love is. How well are we loving our spouses? You see, love is much more of an intentional action than it is a feeling. And oftentimes we buy into this sappy checkout aisle soap magazine picture of love. We get all wrapped up in the feelings and the emotions of love, and there is feeling and emotion in love, but love is first an action. Love is meekness. Love is humility. Love is kindness. Love is forgiveness. Love is grace. Love is compassion. It's a decided action. I will do this. And not only did I commit that at the altar some years ago, but I'm committing to that afresh each day in my marriage. Are you doing that, friends? Are you doing that? I mean, I think we need to renew our vows every morning. Just in your own heart before the Lord. Renew your vows every morning. Remember the commitments that you made. And say, I still do. I still do. Every married couple, this is number two. I'm just going to give you a couple of points here and let you study them on your own. Every married couple must daily let the peace of Christ rule in their hearts. Paul says in verse 15 there, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body and be thankful Peace there, it's not merely the feeling of comfort. We think of peace, it's the external reality that mediates between Christians. In other words, because I am vertically at peace with God, now I am horizontally, as a result, to live at peace with all men. That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Well, that peace is not just a feeling, it's because of the vertical peace that I have with God. The word rule there. Rabuo, it's a fascinating word. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It comes from the world of athletics, and it really means to umpire. In baseball, uh, you think of the umpire, it's the man behind the plate who rules the game. He makes the calls. He remains quiet most of the time, unruffled by by what happens on the field. Managers and coaches may get in his face, players may pout off the field, spectators may yell uh, muddled expletives at him, yet he remains calm and level headed. This is the picture that Paul's painting for us here when he says let the calmness of Christ rule let it umpire in your heart let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your marriage Your spouse is not your enemy Just turn to your spouse and look each other in the eyes you don't have to say anything this time but just dare, just stare deeply into one another's eyes and think to yourself you're not my enemy What is your enemy? Let me take you back to the long introduction. What's your enemy? Sin is the enemy. Your spouse is not your enemy. But how often do we treat our spouse as the enemy? Sin. Go after sin and go after it together. Sin is the enemy. Number three. Is right here on the text, every married couple must daily let the word of Christ dwell in their hearts. Every married couple must daily let the word of Christ dwell in their hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, literally to home or to abide in you. That's what dwell means. My first year of college, I went with the man who led me to Christ. His name was Mike Turner, I went with him to uh, to the airport to pick up another gentleman named calvin cochran whom mike had flown into evansville indiana to speak at a campus outreach weekly meeting that was specifically directed at the university of southern indiana's basketball team and as i'm sitting in the car i was a young christian mike and calvin are talking in the front seat i just was along for the ride with mike we were the discipleship is life on life life in action i go to the airport you go to the airport with me i go to the grocery store you go to the grocery store with me are you discipling anybody Sermon for another time. Calvin and Mike are talking in the front seat and they're talking about a mutual relationship, a mutual friend they have whose marriage is in shambles. Of course, I don't have any context here. And I just was listening as they were talking about how they had been praying for, how they had been reaching out to, and had been seeking to encourage and counsel. And when there was a pause in the conversation, I spoke up from the back seat of the car and I said, What happened? and I'll never forget these words, Mike turned around to me and he said, they quit having a quiet time. And I've never forgotten that. They they quit having a quiet time. Now, that's not to say that every marriage that struggles to spend daily time with God is, is destined for the rocks. But there is something to be said for reaping and harvesting. What I sow, I'll reap. Paul talks about that in Galatians 6, right? I mean, you you reap today what you sowed yesterday, and you'll reap tomorrow what you sow today. Are you letting the word of Christ dwell richly in you? It's one of the questions that I ask couples pretty early on in marriage counseling, is tell me a little bit about your time in the word. You can probably imagine what the response is. Every married couple must daily let the word of Christ dwell in their hearts. Then lastly, every married couple must daily let the name of Christ govern their actions. Look at verse 17. Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 17, it's a lordship verse. Whatever you do means the whole of life is to be related to the lordship of Christ. That means everything in life, even your marriage, is ultimately an act of worship. Let me ask you this, friends. When was the last time you thought of your marriage as being an act of worship? Do you see your marriage as an avenue for worship? You see, what, what, what a difference this motivation should make in our marriage. It should motivate us to be the very best spouse we can be. For my spouse, yes, but far greater than that. For the glory of God, because it's worship. Before him. Here's a prayer. Let me encourage you each morning as your feet hit the floor. Pray something like this. God, help me to speak and to act toward my spouse in a way that brings you honor today. And help me to be thankful for the blessing you've given me in my spouse. A good prayer for you to pray every day as your feet hit the floor.